St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents In Heaven and on Earth, recordings of the classes, talks, and retreats given by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. So this starts our fourth class on the Divine Liturgy, and in our previous classes we discussed uh, the promise of the Kingdom of God uh, throughout the Old Testament, kind of tracing along the Kingdom of God throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and then we came in to discuss the fullness of the kingdom being revealed, of God's kingdom revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the mediation, revelation, and direct image of God the Father. And then last week we kind of laid a basic framework, and by basic I went like underline basic framework, for beginning to understand why we call God uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we leaned especially on Romans 8. Uh, we'll probably have to do a completely other kind of class <laughs> uh, that's not like inquire introductory level to be able to actually talk about the Trinity um, and spend some time and outside reading etc because there's a lot to read on the topic um, but I want us to move on now uh, as we've already explicated blesses the kingdom of the Father Son and Holy Spirit now and ever unto ages of ages and already we can see in our PDF that something is missing. What is missing in the PDF? Amen. Uh, so I want just to speak just a moment about amen. What does amen mean? Yes. Let it be. Let it be. Is that a Beatles song? <laughs> That's what you heard? Are you asking us? Yeah. Believe. It's Hebrew for believe. Believe? Believe. Let it be so, that it may be so. Would it that it be so? You can say it in all these different ways. But it's basically an assent, an agreement to what has been spoken. So... The amen is one of the first, it's one of those words that we're so used to hearing, right? Uh, amen is just kind of, yes. <laughs> it's generic throughout, uh, even if you're not Christian, you kind of know what amen is, right? Um, it's just in the culture. Uh, there's something beyond just kind of saying, <coughs> yeah, okay, right? Yes, or uh, as is already believed, there is something that's personally attached to amen. When you say amen to something, it's not just saying, uh, sure, yes, uh, that sounds good. Uh, it means an actual assent to what is being said to you. So I would like us to look just a moment. We've already we've been using Exodus. Um, let's go back and just look at Exodus 24 uh, again. Because you have, and this sets throughout the Old Testament, uh, you have, especially Deuteronomy, will have explicate this much further. Um, hit Exodus 24 real quick. And verse uh, 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, because he's gone up on the mountain, and he's received not only the Ten Commandments, that's what is usually etched into our minds, right? The Ten Commandments, obviously, because they're symbolically upon the tablets, um, but there's more that's even given ordinances of the people, 
uh, what happens if somebody kills your donkey. Uh, all, you know, God has kind of regulated the life of Israel. He, Moses comes down from the people and he tells them everything that God has told, uh, commanded them to do. And the people answer with one voice and they say, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is a, a basic an amen. This is, we've heard what the Lord uh, has asked of us, the one who saved us, the one who has rescued us from Egypt, the one who is creating us and to be a people, uh, his kingdom on earth. This is our ascent to this, right? This will then get echoed throughout the Old Testament. The prophets are always going to say, remember when we agreed to this covenant that was a covenant that God paved the way for us in the first place? Uh, it wasn't that we said, hey God, can we have a covenant? God came, saved, set Moses, brought them out of Egypt. Uh, he's brought them to the mountain. He's done all of this to bring them to, them to this place. Uh, and so this actually, for us, when we hear the amen uh, in the service, there's, a, there's a one really practical thing. And this is something that can, uh, especially with a choir, uh, you can kind of stand silently through the whole service because there's other people singing. Uh, the beauty of the Orthodox liturgy is that uh, there's a lot of simple parts because there's a lot of variable parts, right? There's hymns that, for example, this evening we were singing about um, the repose of John the Evangelist, unless you actually have the text in front of you, and even sometimes having the text in front of you can be difficult because you might be saying, uh, talking in ways that you never would normally talk. Uh, but then there's all these set pieces that basically everyone knows, and if you uh, don't think that you have the permission to sing them, you of course have the permission to sing along. So something like Amen, it is completely, I mean, maybe not say incumbent upon you, but basically incumbent upon you to say Amen as well. Uh, you are a part of the body of Christ that has gathered together uh, with a solemn declaration of uh, everyone assenting to the blessing that is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So saying Amen uh, is not just empty words. Uh, but it's also something that the entire body together uh, says. The, this element of the entire assembly saying amen, I think actually hits in Father Alexander Schmemann in his uh, book, The Eucharist, which is one of the kind of background books if you want to read further in these areas. The syllabus on the website has just kind of a starting bibliography if you want to go further, if you want to ask me about suggestions you're welcome to ask me for suggestions but one of the things that he really emphasizes that gets lost uh, in later kind of theological commentaries and things is that we lose the basic aspect of the actual he called the sacrament of the assembly that there is something important about the fact that we all have gathered together for this particular event that is occurring we sometimes forget <laughs> that there is a I'm going to say a theological or kingdom import for all of us to gather together. Uh, in the Greek, it's the synaxis. It is the coming together, right? like synthesis, synaxis is the coming together of the people of God, uh, such that in the Orthodox Church, you, you could not have a liturgy with just a priest. 
Why do you think you could not have a liturgy with just a priest? It's kind of what we've been talking about. Is it a mystery? Uh, no, it is not a mystery. <laughs> uh, who would say amen? The priest is not the one to say amen. There has to be someone else there to say amen. And so Father Alexander's uh, driving point is that sometimes we can get lost. There's all these debates. And particularly if you're coming from a, uh, certain Protestant backgrounds, you get to a debate about, so what exactly is happening uh, when the body or the blood or the bread and the wine, if you're not even comfortable saying that yet, what is going on? You have all of these debates and, you know, pages upon pages and tomes and tomes and, you know, divisions and divisions about what exactly is happening at the altar, whether or not it's an altar. That's a whole, in, there's even a debate there. So part of what Father Alexander is, uh, wants to emphasize, and I think it's important for us, and I think we feel this, when you actually come together with the saints, there's already uh, a action of God having called us out from our homes as we're coming here. Uh, you especially see this. Who has been or seen a hierarchical liturgy in the Orthodox Church when the bishop comes and serves? A few people. We have a lot of inquirers or new folks. So... You will see in January, the Archbishop will be here uh, around for the weekend of Theophany, and we will have a hierarchical liturgy, and the, the bishop, what happens, the priest stands at the altar, uh, the doors are opened, and basically the entire liturgy, the priest is basically standing in front of the altar, right? When the bishop comes, uh, he, depending on, not all the time, but many times he comes and he's basically in his riasa, or at, that is the cassock with the long sleeves, <laughs> uh, the one that's a little bit more cumbersome to wear. Um, and he basically uh, is greeted at the door. He's brought into the church uh, and he does, you know, veneration of the icons, gives the blessing, and then he stands in the middle of the church and then he's dressed in front of everyone while they basically uh, sing all of the prayers that are assigned each element that he puts he vests himself in uh, this is all because in the early church uh, the synaxis of the gathering of the people uh, the liturgy started not inside the actual uh, building but it started somewhere else and you basically um, processed into the church and you would stop at different places and people would gather together and then you would enter the church you can still see this in the hierarchical liturgy where the bishop stays outside for uh, the blesses the kingdom, a priest goes into the altar, and the bishop stands, he's fully vested. They do the great litany, you go through all the litanies, the antiphons, uh, then you come to the, the little entrance where the gospel book is brought out, and that is then when the bishop goes into the altar, because historically that was when everyone entered into the church and then they put the um, gospel on the altar. So this assembly or the calling out uh, of the people of God is a kind of um, a baseline thing that it can be something that we overlook because we want to talk about other things but the very fact that God has called us together just like he did in Exodus right why did he draw them out of Egypt because he wanted to create a kingdom of uh, a nation of holy priests as Exodus tells us so the importance of the assembly is even, you know, in scripture, there is 
um, at least if I remember correctly, at the end of the book of Hebrews, there's a kind of warning about do not you know, forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Uh, and then in, even in the early canons of the church, um, there are some, how shall I say, I don't want to say strict penalties, but basically if you were to voluntarily not show up for three consecutive Sundays and you're not out of town, uh, there would be an issue. <laughs> Uh, the bishop would say, you need to reconcile yourself back to the church because you basically uh, have exempted yourself from coming to the divine services and have kind of on your own uh, excommunicated yourself because you've not assembled together with the brethren. Um, so that you can see the gravity of actually coming together uh, there enshrined in the canons of the church. Is somebody wondering what I'm talking about when I say canons? It's okay if you say, what are you talking about? I have at least one. So, canons. Does anyone want to help me out? What is a canon? You put like an 18-pound like, ball it's inside of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the law. It's the law, okay. It's the law. That's one way to talk about it. Ecclesiastical law. Ecclesiastical law. It's probably, if you look in, a, in a, a dictionary, you'll find ecclesiastical law is probably the first definition, maybe the second definition. So basically, the canonical literature of the church, if you ever read the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, uh, Titus, uh, or even in parts of Paul's epistles where he starts to like kind of get down to business and starts talking about like, these are the qualifications for an elder or an episcopos or for a deacon or, you know, the widows should be assembled together and like taken care of in a particular way. Uh, all of this kind of early uh, literature, this doesn't stop in the New Testament. The early Christians then have, you have apostolic constitutions, apostolic traditions. These are titles for some of this early literature. Um, Hippolytus, uh, you get second, third, fourth century, you have, because uh, if you've ever tried, <laughs> been in any church at some level, unless it's completely, I don't know, a flash in the pan, at some point you have to have some organization. <laughs> Uh, and you also, especially if you're rooted uh, in Israel and the law, if you just look through Leviticus, or uh, there is particular ideas about who the leadership is supposed to be, uh, what they're called to, what the expectations for the people of God, are, uh, all these kind of things. So the canons are basically um, the way to structure or run the household of God. So uh, if you float around on the internet, you'll always come across interesting things of varying levels of goodness. Uh, and you can definitely find people who want you to read uh, canons. Don't read canons. It's, it's unnecessary for you unless you have particular, um, I say, pastoral responsibilities. Uh, because exactly, because it is for the bishop, especially in the ordering and the structuring of the household of God. Um, any questions about that? Yes? What if you're a reporter trying to understand the Ukrainian <laughs> situation? We will pass over that in silence. Okay. <laughs> For another day. Any other questions? But that is the canon. That's, there, there are canons and stuff relevant to that, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. There's all sorts of... But this, this, so the challenge is that there's all sorts of relevant canons... The question is always, how do we interpret, with any text, how do we interpret them and how do we use a 6th century text in the 21st century? 
So this is a running debate within the Orthodox Church exactly how to use the canons. So I'm going to move <laughs> beyond canons before I get myself into treacherous territory. Uh, part of the amen, besides the sacrament, obviously you need people gathered together to say amen, is then um, a theme that I want to just kind of briefly hit on, but it's something that I think uh, for a lot of our backgrounds or just in American Christianity, uh, this is kind of problematic and it's always a question that arises. And this is implicit, I think, in when the assembly is saying amen, and I think it's implicit throughout uh, the liturgy, and it's uh, explicit, uh, explicit rather, not ex, ex explicit, uh, throughout the tradition that God works with man. That would be, if you want to use the big theological word, the Orthodox Church basically believes that there's a synergy between God and man. Uh, synergy, right? That already synaxis. We already have the base Greek word there, right? So synergy, working together uh, for uh, the energy there and synergy, uh, energia, or the energy. So a working together of God and man. Now, okay, so, so far, so good, except there is very popular in certain circles especially or maybe particularly within reform circles you get the idea of the opposite of that uh, which is not synergism but monergism and in fact if you google monergism you can find like monergism.org or monergism.com uh, and all sorts of argumentation about this and this hits on uh, aspects of what orthodox believe salvation is um, and it affects everything <laughs> about how the Orthodox view uh, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, uh, the, what the uh, effect of the liturgy is, I mean, all of these things. So monergism is the basic argument is God is the only actor in our salvation. Right? I mean, you probably... Yeah. They would say Calvinists would not actually say like the entire salvation process. They would say for certain parts of it, like regeneration. Right. God is the basic mover, though. Man is not. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody could get saved if God didn't like act on them unilaterally on, by His own will. Right. So the Orthodox, and this is where then we start floating off into abstract debates upon debates. And I don't want to hit on all of those abstract debates, except to underline that. Our response to God, our amen to God, is already our um, working together. He, like, as I've already talked about, right? God brought Israel out. He freed them. He uh, brought them to the foot of the mountain. He, bring, he raised up Moses. He's giving them a law. He's, giving them, he's going to give them the tabernacle. He's going to give them all of the tools and instruments they need for their salvation. The question is then, how exactly are they going to respond to that? So they say yes, and then God in Deuteronomy, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, will say, if you do these things, these are the blessings, these are the things that are going to happen. If you don't, and then you have a whole, this is the bad stuff that is going to happen, if you do not uh, attend to what uh, your agreement, uh, your part of the covenant, even though I've laid all the, the groundwork I have provided the entire context for your salvation. You did not save yourself. God saves you. 
uh, you still have to respond and you still have to actually partake in that salvific process. Um, so this is exactly how God works to call to save us. He calls us. He woos us. Uh, it's not a refutation of his sovereignty or his place as king and lord, but it is that he, and especially we see this in Shrine and what we think about the Theotokos, and we'll have a whole uh, kind of class dedicated to talking about the Virgin Mary, um, but it's in line with what God uh, works with us. He calls us, sanctifies us, purifies us, uh, and all of this process is how God works to save us. But we, when we say amen, then have to follow up that amen by actually attending to the amen, right? Our personal assent means our personal action. Um, when we look at Exodus 24, I just want to hit two things before we move uh, into the great litany or the litany of peace. Um, you see already this, the form, uh, if you look at, uh, of the divine liturgy. In Exodus 24, you have already Moses has come down from the mountain. He tells them all the ordinances. They say, we will do what the Lord has spoken. And then Moses writes down, verse 4, all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He then sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then in verse 9, which we've hit in previous classes, that is when Moses, Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders go up to the side of the mountain and have the meal with God. You have the preparation for the meal, for the actual coming together of the people of God. There, there's the reading of uh, the word. So the section of the liturgy that we're moving into uh, is known as the liturgy of the word. Because what is the major components that we're moving towards, right? So we're going to start with the litany. We'll hit antiphons, which are basically the psalms that we sing uh, that are interspersed with other little litanies. Uh, then we have an entrance with the gospel book, uh, the procession with the gospel book. We'll have some more hymns. And basically we're setting up to then read the epistle and the gospel. This is all the ancient... Um, you can see it in the Roman mass to this day. You can see it mo <laughs> in most services even in a lot of Protestant services, knowing, knowing or unknowingly <laughs> replicating this basic format uh, is the ancient format. You see it in Justin Martyr. You see it in all the early accounts of the way the services are, uh, partly because it's already here uh, in the Old Testament. You have the reading of the scriptures is the first section of the liturgy. And you can kind of think of this even like here in uh, Exodus, where they, they're standing outside the mountain, right? The people uh, who Moses has called forward, they haven't gone up the mountain yet. They're there, they, uh, they ascent, uh, there's the peace offering, and then they have the reading of the scriptures, and then there is an ascent up the mountain to then have the meal with God. So this is, in a kind of microcosm, 
what the divine liturgy is, we are uh, beginning to pray. Uh, we've called for the blessing of the kingdom. We begin to pray, and then we're preparing basically to hear the word of God uh, after the prayers. It can be overwhelming when you're in the liturgy because maybe you're not used to that much. How should I say? Well, an Orthodox church can be overwhelming, period, if you've never been inside an Orthodox church. Um, but just how much the singing, uh, the praying, and the order that is kind of there, even though it might seem on first encounter like chaos. Does anyone, when they first encountered the Orthodox Church, they thought it was a little chaotic? Yeah? Mar maybe because you don't have a bench to sit in <laughs> uh, and kind of like uh, get into your spot and kind of hide in the hymnal or that like the Orthodox Church is, has, is a very different experiential um, way of approaching prayer, uh, church, etc. So, the so any, yes, Terry. Memory of a child who went to this on one of our first visits, leaned over to the parents and said, who are the cuckoo clock guys that keep popping out the doors? <laughs> cuckoo clock guys? Yeah, they keep popping out the doors on the side. <laughs> there, so there's deacons. Yeah. <laughs> well, or the priest just coming in. And well, out. and priest going out one, and the altar boys. That's funny. Cuckoo clock. <laughs> I've seen it done where they actually act like, you know, where they, it's all time regimented. And oh, yeah. And yeah, you can find a lot of different kind of styles in the Orthodox Church. Uh, if you're to watch even a, like a liturgy in Greece, it feels very homey in a way, unless you're in a very big church. They, they tend to have smaller churches, partly because they were under the, the uh, in the Ottoman Empire for so long. So they didn't really build a lot of huge churches at that time. Uh, the Muslims wouldn't allow them to. Uh, but then in Russia, you have these huge ceremonies, and it can be much more regimented, <laughs> much more even, I want to say militaristic, but like that kind of like, there's order, and you Your can tell there's order. You literally have you guys on uh, with headsets that are basically like making sure that you are in line. That's a different world. <laughs> um, so we begin with the great litany. Any guesses to why we call it the Great Litany? Because it's the best litany of the... <laughs> it's not the Little Litany. It's not a Little Litany, that is true. <laughs> when we hit the Little Litany, you'll see there's only three petitions. Uh, two petitions rather than the... First in line is the Great. The first in line is the Great. You know what? This Litany was not in this place in the liturgy until the ninth century. A lot of these litanies, if you look back, there's actually... They, like what I was just saying, okay, so they put this lit this litany here in the ninth century. That's a long time ago. Uh, a lot of the core elements of these litanies are litanies that if you go back and look at third, fourth century uh, liturgies, you will see the basic form there from very early on. I think it's, a, you know, it's anybody's guess really, the great litany. I think it's the first litany uh, it's a litany that then, as you'll see, covers kind of everything, right? This is a litany where we're just, where it's almost like we're, we're going to cover and pray for the whole world and everything in it and everything that we need in it. This litany kind of gathers it all together. Uh, in the Greek, actually, the, the, how they'll t refer to litanies is not a litany, but uh, if I, I might be butchering this, but synopti, which is in the Greek means 
uh, a collection, or the verb means to like join or attach or combine together. So this, the great litany or the uh, synopsis is basically gathering all the things that we need to pray together and offering them to God. Um, this is actually, in fact, uh, the reasoning that St. Simeon of Thessaloniki, which is, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, like 11th or 12th century commentator on the Divine Liturgy, uh, it, it's called this because it gathers all into one as our Savior prayed in the Gospel of John. Uh, and this, I think, actually underlines the importance of synergy, as we'll see here, uh, that the, the litany itself is something, is the kind of the work of the people coming together and praying for. We all have particular, I would say, angles or slants on every one of these litanies, and every time I pray these litanies, I have kind of different intentions that come to mind as I'm praying these things. Um, because there's a kind of a Catholic element, there's a kind of universalism in these prayers. Uh, as we'll see, they cover all sorts of things, and because of that kind of universality, then the particularity can be brought into that universality. Um, we collect uh, the entire uh, world together in the Great Litany. I remember my first experience of uh, liturgical worship um, was the big takeaway for me was actually, it actually seemed like we prayed for just about everything. Because I'd been so used to services where, depending on whoever's doing the prayer, you might end up with praying for a minuscule amount of things. It's whatever, whoever the guy was tapped to do, like the, in, the ending prayer, and he might actually say the prayer that he always prays, at least that's how it was when I was growing up. They kind of had a rehearsed prayer that they kind of knew. Uh, and if you, if you don't, if your eyes are closed, you're on the spot, you might end early. <laughs> you don't actually get to cover everything. Uh, so one of the great benefits or kind of structure that the litanies give us is that we're able to actually uh, cover a lot of ground uh, when we're gathered together and praying uh, these litanies. So why do we start in peace? Let us pray to the Lord. history of persecution. Supposed to be reconciled with your brother before you begin praying. The reality that God, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus commands us to be reconciled with our brother before we offer, go and make our offering. You'll notice the first three litanies, what's the theme in the first three litanies? Peace. In peace let us pray to the Lord for the peace from above and for the salvation of our souls let us pray to the Lord. For the peace of the whole world, for the welfare of the holy churches of God, and the union of all, let us pray to the Lord. One of the aspects, I think, about the liturgy is, and in the same way of scripture, and how the fathers of the church, uh, theologians throughout the centuries, uh, when they uh, approach a text like peace, uh, if you were to pull out like a concordance and go through the Bible and look at peace, right, you can get all sorts of elements of peace. And in some way, I, you know, we could spend a whole class, I'm not going to do this, <laughs> on just, in peace let us pray to the Lord, right? Amen. 
<laughs> because it will ref refract through uh, the entire scriptures. You could say the theme of the kingdom of God and what he is trying to establish here is uh, peace. That the ravaging of sin and all of, uh, as we read in Romans 8, the whole world uh, in um, waiting for the salvation of the sons of God, uh, we want to pray to the Lord in peace. Uh, have you ever tried to pray when you don't have peace of soul and mind? It can be really hard because the only things that come to you are what you're mad about, <laughs> what's bothering you. Uh, and so even that prayer for us to begin uh, the liturgy or for any, actually, this is the great litany for every service that calls for a great litany. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. It's going to be the same thing every single time. Uh, this element of peace that we need, uh, it's also convicting. Uh, when we come into the services, we, you know, get out of our car, we walk in, uh, who knows what can happen in between just getting from the car into the church uh, of our inner peace. Maybe we did all of our morning prayers, everything, and then something, <laughs> that one thing happens that just sets us off. Uh, to enter into prayer is to enter into an ask and acquire peace. <coughs> You can tell in the litany it moves from uh, a general sense of peace, that we should be praying in peace. Uh, then it moves from individual, right? From the peace from above and from the salvation of our souls. Then it moves outward from the peace of the whole world, the welfare of the holy churches of God. Uh, this kind of movement, I think, uh, reflects a healthy understanding of what the spiritual life is, uh, that we, when we're praying to the Lord about these things, uh, it's usually good for us to have our own house in order before we're looking to try and organize anybody else's house. Uh, I think Jesus says something <laughs> about this, uh, that we need to take care of our business, our soul, uh, and there's a recognition that the peace that we are attempting to pray in, that we're asking for, uh, comes from where? It comes from above. It is a peace that is something that we have not been able to find on our own. It is a peace that we're not able to maintain on our own. Uh, it's the peace of the kingdom that God has brought into our midst and brings us uh, into through the liturgy. Um, does anyone know what the Greek word is for in the let us pray to the Lord, what the let us pray to the Lord is, or the pray there? We just think maybe he's just saying we need to pray to the Lord. Has anyone been to a Greek liturgy or no Greek? Kukiru theithomen. Theithomen uh, is to entreat, to beg, to supplicate. It's not just kind of uh, everybody get into your mental space and shoot some mental thoughts to God. It's actually, let us pray to the Lord, is let us beg God. Let us come and beg for the peace from above and for the salvation of our souls. Has anyone ever been bothered by how much repetition is in the Orthodox liturgy? 
And what do we say over and over again? Lord have mercy. <laughs> a lot. And we say if there if there is a repetition in the liturgy, it is Lord have mercy. Uh, that is my assumption. Yeah, because I know, like some, like in, in the Navarro, in Navarro pray, prayers, yes. you're not paying attention on your Lord and Master. They'll think, oh, it's Jesus, but right. no, it's actually God the Father. Yes, the Navarro is directed to God the Father. Right. So do we? You just, can tell because they're always in in the prayer. Son. Yeah, your only begotten Son and your all Holy Spirit. Right. Um, but I also think there there is a kind of ambiguity uh, to the Lord, and not ambiguity in the sense of like. It's ambiguous who the Lord is. The Lord is uh, Jesus Christ, but it's also like as we um, uh, the, the way in which to cover the the sacred word Yahweh that you have Lord becomes the basic reference to talk about God throughout uh, the Old Testament. I think there's a sense here, Lord. Uh, you could say that it's directed exactly to Jesus Christ, but um, they, you're never going to appeal to Jesus Christ and not have the Father and the Spirit be right there beside it. It's not an issue of uh, I have to direct a prayer to the Father, a prayer to the Son, and a prayer to the Spirit. Make sure I cover all my bases. Um, what do you think the the prayer for the welfare of the holy churches of God is a reference to. That they build huge edifices and have a nice uh, bank account. So it's stuff like Ukraine and Russia's <laughs> <laughs> Yes. The only thing I've ever wondered about that is why it's plural. Why does it say churches. Why does it say holy churches of God? It's a church. That's Orthodox ecclesiology. So what does that mean? It means that the, that there are particular churches, right? Like the, like the OCA and right. The, and the, yeah. Uh, so there is a ecclesiological. Ecclesiological just means uh, talking about the church. Point that the early church had when you had the bishop, you always had in the Eucharist somebody who presided. Uh, because someone stands in front of the table or stands at the table uh, and says the words or is able to uh, lead the assembly in worship. We have this very early in the text. And so in the early churches, especially if you're reading Acts, right, they're not gathering in uh, basilicas. That's later. They're gathering in houses. And the houses usually were run by overseers, episcopoi, presbyters, uh, or at least a head presbyter who uh, was the bishop. And what you have is then you have the church that is in the household of such and such, the church that is in Antioch, which is then you'll have multiple bishops. But there's a sense there already that, uh, as you're alluding to, that this is basically orthodox ecclesiology, that 
there is uh, multiple churches because there's multiple local manifestations of the kingdom of God or those who have been uh, grafted on to the root uh, that is um, the churches. So this, uh, this text <laughs> would predate denominationalism. So it's not a prayer for the welfare of all of the you know, holy denominations that dot the landscape. That's not really what it's about. Um, it is about all of the local assemblies uh, of the church um, and for their welfare that, as you see already in Paul, uh, if you're reading Paul, if you're reading 1 Corinthians, you don't have to read very far in Paul to see that there is, as Father Stephen is already alluding to, there's trouble uh, in the church from the very beginning. Um, besides Judas, you already have uh, schism, you have false teaching, you have uh, people who are stealing or who are lying. I mean, look at the book of Acts. You have all sorts of trouble going on. So when we are praying for the welfare of the holy churches of God, um, we, you know, that can be really specific in particular to when there is conflict within the church. Uh, because the Orthodox Church is, you know, confesses to be uh, the church of Christ, and yet it's uh, afflicted uh, by issues because well, the church has always had uh, issues. We've always had fighting, there's always tensions. It's like any family. Everyone is family, but there are times where certain people don't talk to each other or there's issues. Um, this is uh, realistic, uh, but it's also something there, why exactly we put it to pray for, and it's very early in the, the litanies, uh, that we pray for the welfare of the, the churches and for the union of all, that everyone, and I've read some commentary where they try to make, it's only about the union of the church, but the context to me, the peace of the whole world, the welfare of the holy churches of God, and for the union of all, is the basic desire and ex uh, exclamation that we do desire everyone to be unified, and from the Christian point of view, the unity that is going to hold everything together is the unity that of the Creator, uh, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, uh, as Ephesians four talks about. So I think the the multiplicity there is exactly that there are different manifestations, uh, local Eucharistic uh, assemblies or synaxes uh, that are, that is praying for everyone. You see this especially manifested. Uh, if you were to go to a different uh, diocese in the OCA, uh, as we're going to get to, well, let's just skip for just a second um, for this holy house and go to a far metropolitan deacon and our Archbishop Alexander. You usually have to do editing on the fly because they're not going to do separate printings for every diocese. And if a bishop dies, then, you know. Uh, so you have, um, we always are commemorating uh, our Metropolitan, because he's the primate of the Synod, uh, that basically means that he is uh, the, how should I say, the figure of unity for the Synod of Bishops. Uh, and then we always commemorate our local bishop, which is uh, who is Archbishop Alexander. Uh, and that is, if I was to go up to Chicago, I would be commemorating Bishop Paul, who is the Bishop of uh, Chicago. Uh, so each local uh, church uh, commemorates their bishop because he is a sign in the early church and here's I'm gonna make a plug on Sundays after <coughs> Divine Liturgy we are reading through the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch 
who is the earliest uh, witness of uh, the, the centrality of the bishop and his faith and for the right ordering of the church. Um, so come or at least uh, listen to the podcast of the, the recording that we do of the classes. Uh, so we have in them, we have a representation of each local church or the diocese that I would say my archbishop represents me in the synod. And if there's an issue, then I talk to the bishop and then there's a discussion in the synod. Uh, usually doesn't have to get to the synod because the issue can be dealt with within the diocese. Um, any questions about that that I can answer in like a minute? Because that, because that is another like besides the Holy Trinity, <laughs> to talk about uh, church order and all that stuff, we can do a separate class on. Yes. Just the synod is that like the OCA and the, the Russian Orthodox? So, and the... okay, so the synod is yeah, we get to use another sin word. Uh, synod means basically the gathering together. So a synod, a local uh, church, is ruled by a synod. So the Orthodox Church in America is ruled by um, the different bishops of the diocese. The Metropolitan is also a bishop of a particular local diocese. Uh, they are then basically self-governing. So there's not another church that has kind of like uh, checking in on them. If there's a need in that synod to help uh, deal with issues within the synod, then there, will be, there can be a calling together of a larger uh, synod to come together and talk about it, hence the ecumenical councils. Um, so you'll have different autocephalous churches. Autocephalous, we love Greek words. Uh, autocephalous just means self-governed. So uh, you have different uh, patriarchates uh, and churches that are self-governed. Um, I can't remember the number. I think it's 13 or 14 self-governing churches, uh, Orthodox churches. Russia, Serbia, Romania, Czech lands, Poland, uh, these are, I'm going like from the bottom, uh, Albania, um, OCA, uh, Church of Greece, Constantinople, Jerusalem, now we're getting into old ones, Alexandria, um, Ukraine. Antioch. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. No, 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 we're not talking about Ukraine. <laughs> I'm not wading into those waters. Not on, not being, while being recorded. Is Georgia? Yes, Georgia, thank you. Georgia is an ancient uh, patriarchate that uh, its roots are in the, the Patriarch of Antioch, actually, and then eventually become mostly because they're way out there. If you're looking at like, the Roman Empire, Georgians are way out there. So uh, we pray also for, to go back to this, the litany before, for this holy house and for those who enter with faith, reverence, and the fear of God. And the thing that I always kind of come away from this uh, litany is a kind of reminder to myself uh, did I enter <laughs> with faith reverence and the fear of God or did I just kind of mosey on in here uh, you know it's always a temptation uh, I mean there's a plus side to it there's something about being able to feel at home in church right just like when you're at home uh, but if you have guests over you're typically not I don't know relaxing like you do when you're watching Netflix at like 9.30 at night, right? Well, maybe you do. <laughs> I hope we haven't descended that far <laughs> to chaos. Uh, but usually put, you know, you try to put something out there. You actually like maybe clean up the house a little bit, you know, set the table. Uh, 
So when we come into God's house, there is a, I think it's fascinating this litany, praise for those, and it kind of implies that there are people who are entering into the church that aren't entering with faith, reverence, and the fear of God. If you can think about the ancient church, especially if you're talking about like seventh, eighth century, and you have these huge basilicas, you have Chrysostom even in the fourth century, who is talking uh, about the fact that there's people who are coming into like the narthex of the church or to the courtyard of the church and doing things they shouldn't be doing. Uh, and he has to preach about it from the Soleia, from in the middle of the church. So you can imagine uh, in the ancient world, in the ancient Christian world especially, you've got, you're gonna have a lot of traffic in and out, especially if you're doing services on a regular basis. Uh, so there is a kind of self reminder here to enter into the house of God I find it fascinating, or maybe I'm the only one. Why do we, for this holy house, what is that a reference to? That's not a trick question. <laughs> the local place. The local place. Yes. You were going to say that? Yeah. The temple. So I want to read actually a quote from St. Germanos, who's the Archbishop of Constantinople. Uh, because, and this is, uh, this is, he's from the 8th century, um, and this is a famous uh, quote from him. It's the very beginning of his uh, commentary on the Divine Liturgy. Um, he says, The church is the temple of God, a holy place, a house of prayer, the assembly of the people, the body of Christ. It is called the bride of Christ. It is cleansed by the water of his baptism, sprinkled by his blood. You can think of Exodus in the background here, where they were sprinkled with the blood. Clothed in bridal garments and sealed with the ointment of the Holy Spirit, according to the prophetic saying, your name is oil poured out. And we run after the fragrance of your myrrh, which is like the precious oil running down upon the beard, the beard of Aaron. It's quotes from the Canticles, uh, Song of Songs and Psalms. The church is an earthly heaven in which the super celestial God, the God above all of the heavens, dwells and walks about. It represents the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is glorified more than the tabernacle of the witness of Moses, in which are the mercy seat and the holy of holies. It is prefigured in the patriarchs, foretold by the prophets, founded in the apostles, adorned by the hierarchs, and fulfilled in the martyrs. I especially love here, uh, and I think of this quote for this holy house because of this particular line, the church is an earthly heaven in which the super celestial, the God above all the heavens, dwells and walks about that this holy house is a place, uh, as we've already mentioned in previous classes, um, there's a sense in which the divine liturgy, the constitution of the kingdom of God that he is trying to, to bring about is in some senses, uh, like the, book, the end of the book of Revelation. What is the end of the book of Revelation? New, new heaven and new earth. And it has all the imagery of, of, the, temple. of the temple, temple being in, I love it. You're going to New Jerusalem, the garden, right? Where God walked about with Adam and Eve. You have here Hermanus talking about the super celestial God 
comes and dwells and walks about in the church. Now, yes, he realizes Paul means the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia, those who are called out, are uh, all those who have been baptized and sealed with the chrism. He says that. But you, you realize in the Orthodox Church, uh, there is a strong sense, uh, and you could say kind of the iconic imagination um, of the Orthodox Church because of our worship uh, and everything. The Orthodox Church, when we build our new building, God willing, within the next few years, because we need to, because we're completely out of space, um, we uh, are at some point, because this, that will be a building dedicated solely to the worship of God in a way that this space is still kind of an in-between space, um, this altar is not a consecrated altar. Uh, we will have a consecration of the temple, and the temple uh, will be uh, washed and uh, sealed with chrism in the same way that a Christian is. Now, obviously, the temple is not, the, the building that we're going to build is not saved in the way that we are, but it is uh, an affirmation in the way that the fathers will talk about that the church building itself, and the way Yermanos talks about it, the church building itself represents uh, a Christian. You have the heart and the head of the Christian in the altar. You have, you, the, they will talk about, and we can do a class on this at some point, um, how the entire layout of the church and every aspect of the church has meaning to it, uh, meaning for our salvation. So when you consecrate a church, you're consecrating a holy house dedicated to where God is going to walk about inside of it, uh, just as he did uh, on Mount Sinai. Uh, the whole service, uh, it starts at the very beginning, you know, they don't go into the altar when they do the, the consecration service. You start the service outside of the church, and then you basically do Paschal uh, music about uh, the doors having been open, thrown open by Christ, and then you move into and you seal the bones of the martyrs within the altar that's going to be the permanent blessed altar. Uh, it's a very elaborate service, a beautiful service. If you're ever able to go to one within a few hours of driving, you should because you might only see one or two in your entire life. So take note. Um, the, the Holy House... Uh, and this kind of cuts against, I think, uh, a basic kind of desire, or a lot of Christians will always kind of quickly denigrate uh, the building. And there's kind of an implicitness there, or at least the Orthodox Church is quite explicit about the need for, um, we're embodied human beings, we, we eat, we smell, we feel, we do all these, and our worship is going to appeal to every aspect of us because, uh, as Mike has already talked about at the uh, end of the book of Revelation, it's a new heaven and new earth. We, this body is going to be resurrected. It'll be transformed. It won't be exactly like this body because this body is going to die. Uh, but the whole world is also going to get uh, a refreshment, a transfiguration, uh, a change. It's not just going to... Be blown away. Any other questions or anything? As I thought I was aiming to get through, and we're going to get through. Does anyone want me to just push through or go ahead and end here? Because it is time for us to end. End. When you
you can read, I'll, I will just say this, you can read so that we can go ahead and keep moving, uh, that the Orthodox Church then moves after we've done all the, if you want to say done all the spiritual type things, and then moves down into the very uh, earthy and basic needs and things that we uh, have to do for us. We pray for the president of our country, the civil authorities, and for the armed forces. I typically kind of say for those who serve in the armed forces because the, uh, the litany itself is not uh, a direct appeal to, you know, hurrah. Uh, it is an appeal for those who are serving in the armed forces. Um, we pray for the president because Paul to, uh, told the Christians to pray for the emperor. Not that our president is an emperor, but <laughs> we pray for the civil authorities. Uh, the Orthodox Church is always seeking the ways in which um, and honoring the ways in which the world uh, provides for us. You know, we have civil authorities. We have people, whether or not they always do their jobs, that's a whole other conversation. And, but there's an idea that as a human civilization, we need to have order. The Orthodox Church is not against this order. Uh, and so we need to pray for those who make our life um, peaceful, uh, etc. Yes, Terry? Is there a phrase in the liturgy that we hear go by occasionally? Is it elsewhere in the service that we hear the phrase for the president of this God-protected land? This God-protected land. We, we sing it at the end uh, for the pol uh, polychronion, the uh, many years. Yeah, yeah. Later. I mean, God protected land. I'll make one throughout the Old Testament, or Daniel and on. There is the understanding of God being the ruler over the nations through the representative angels, etc. So, an understanding of God protected land uh, is rooted in that understanding. God is the providential order of all things, whether we like that or not. That that is the way it is. One thing I always notice is it says, and for the faithful dwelling in them. Yes. It seems like you're excluding the, uh, the, the unfaithful and the sinners. And, you know, uh, I guess that's covered in, in elsewhere, right? I mean, so I could see why you could interpret for the city, for every city and country, for the faithful dwelling in them, that it seemed to only be talking about the faithful. But I think the word and uh, gives you space to be able to say that you're I mean, the we're, are in the we're, first part we're praying for the president. Yeah. We're praying for the civil authorities. <laughs> I mean, what, Lord, God knows. Lord, zip my, <laughs> my lips. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the, the, lit, the great litany covers, you know, our need for order out of chaos, our need for food, uh, for the fact that we especially you can get an agrarian culture here, like we need seasonal weather, otherwise we're gonna die. Uh, of course you're gonna pray for that. And then we're gonna pray for those, obviously those who travel by air is a later uh, addition, that was not an early. Uh, and there's even some debate exactly about how to talk about that because it is a, a later addition. Uh, and one commentary I have, they, he's specifically like uh, critiquing certain uh, ways that the Greeks will talk about it, it's like, it's not for like flyers. He's like all these little words that they are trying to like grab the idea that people are flying. But yeah, it's just funny. What was armed forces put in there? It sounds like an NFL halftime show. Uh, for the armed forces? Yeah, as opposed to, I don't know what the so, would have been. Uh, just historically, yes. 
So I'll talk about this next time because this can open up into a whole, especially since we just had exaltation of the cross, uh, we can talk about. And we can then talk about also a little bit of church history, a little bit uh, in talking about the way in which you had a millennia of Christianity in the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, and that affects the liturgy. We, you can still see the remnants of it throughout our liturgy. There are places where we edit it a little bit, um, and other places where you can see it still kind of sticking out. This is one of those places. I can see the city. Every, you're not just praying for streets. Right. <laughs> yeah, so the, the centers are actually in the first part of that. Victory over all their enemies yeah. is a phrase. That right. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine inheritance, granting victory over the barbarians. Orthodox people over all their enemies. Yeah. So we, we, we can relegate that to another time. You can see the pastoral need to be able to address the fact that we don't live in the Roman Empire uh, and haven't for a long time. Okay. So there's, there's been additions where they will update. And so, for example, it used to be there was an argument 100 years ago where we would pray for the emperor or for the czar or for the king. Uh, in Canada, they still pray for the queen because she's, this, she's the civil authority. She's, there's, there's not a president. So... Victory over your enemies could be the spiritual enemies also. Right, that's, that is what the church uh, begins to interpret it as. In the same, we have the same, the same problem in the Old Testament. What exactly do you do with this? So, I don't want to get too far <laughs> afield, but I also want uh, to bring us to an end.